Let me tell you a little something about love, Dennis. It has voracious appetite. It eats everything. Friendship, family. It kills me how much it eats. But I'll tell you something else. You feed it right, and it can be a beautiful thing, and that's what we have. You know, when someone believes in you, man, you can do anything, any fucking thing in the entire universe. And when you believe right back in that someone, then watch out, world, because nobody can stop you. Then nobody, ever. And you feel this way about Lee? <laughs> what? Fuck no. Talking about Christine, man. No shitter ever came between me and Christine. Now you watch this. Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we are never learning to drive after watching Christine. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. A little recap, in real life, the Final Girls put in events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. We can do that again now. We did one the other day. And on the show, we take a horror trope and rip it apart, explore what works, what doesn't, how it's changed, what has aged badly, kind of just revisit horror films and discuss them in depth with some really smart, really funny women and the binary folk. And in this fourth series of the podcast, we're looking at teen horror and why teenagers and their woes make some of the most compelling protagonists and villains in the genre space. We're going from the original slasher films of the 70s to the most recent teen horror movies. So we've got a lot to cover yet. Before we dive into our film this week, quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Girls UK for updates, lists, event announcements, horror memes, a lot of TikToks of Ghostface dancing. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work, get occasional bonus episodes, and if you don't want to join that, that that's fine, but we really would appreciate if you could leave us a little rating or a little review over on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. But in this week's episodes, we're not looking at the start of a franchise, but at a one-off horror film. Christine. An adaptation of a Stephen King novel by the master of horror John Carpenter, on the surface, Christine is just about an evil car. And while the premise might sound silly, it contains multitudes. And upon rewatch, it is a truly chilling horror film, especially watching it now. You'll find out after hearing the episode exactly why I found it so chilling. If you're new to the show and have never seen Christine before, joining me on this episode is the film critic Dr. Kelly Weston, my fellow King fan, one of the smartest people I know, and uh, I guess after this episode, our official Stephen King correspondent. So with all of that said, please enjoy our take on Christine. So welcome back onto the podcast, Dr. Kelly Weston. 
thank you for having me back. You are my official Stephen King correspondent. I think it is <laughs> illegal for me to talk about a Stephen King adaptation without talking to you first. First of all, I love that. <laughs> it feels very, um, uh, very true to um, my own feelings about Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this before. Yes. It feels very natural for us. I feel yes. like he's a dominant. He's the third person, the dominant force in our relationship. Yeah, it's like we have a a, a book club with Stephen King, except Stephen doesn't know it's that he's true. in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> one day, one day when we both have the time and the stamina to do it, we will talk about a lot of Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, fully pulling for and hoping to guilt you into, because I'm now saying it publicly, doing an episode on Dolores Claiborne so that we can completely get into it. Is it horror? Not exactly, but it is a Stephen King adaptation, and we both love this film. It is about the horror of being a woman. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, some might say sometimes being a bitch is the only thing a woman has to hold on to. Some might say, indeed. <laughs> Probably the best feminist line written by a male author ever. <laughs> I, I agree. I will give that to Stephen King. I mean, when I was six years old, I my eyes were open. <laughs> <laughs> He changed my life. <laughs> it's like Stephen King and the uh, rapper Trina are the two central forces in making me a feminist. <laughs> so shout out to both of them. Shout out to Stephen <laughs> King and Katrina Taylor. <laughs> oh, I love it. And, you know, we, we kind of digress about Stephen King, but it's not really a digression because we're here to talk about another Stephen King teen horror adaptation christine mm -hmm. yes i love christine i'm pretty sure I, I saw christine quite late i'm pretty sure also around the time that we did the stephen king panel but just like by happenstance mm -hmm. because i like john carpenter a lot and it was one of those films of his that i hadn't seen and uh i fell in love with it so, yeah, this is exciting for me. <laughs> so, for anyone who has not seen Christine in a little while, could you try to briefly summarize the plot of the film? I think it is a classic tale of boy meets car. Boy falls in love with car. Car destroys all the boy's human relationships. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, it is, it's about this nerdy a guy who called Arnie. He's played by Keith Gordon. Um, interesting connection. He's in a De Palma film, which was the last film that we talked about. No, it wasn't the last one we talked about, but it was the last Stephen King film mm -hmm. we talked about. Carrie. Uh, De Palma also did, is it Dress to Kill? Is that the one yes. where it's like Michael Caine? Yeah. Keith Gordon is in that film. Um, but anyway, he's he plays here this kid named Arnie, and basically he buys this car with a really sinister past and seems to ostensibly not quite be possessed by the car but seems to sort of take on her influence so that he adopts these really conventional masculine uh tendencies where he's like swearing all the time and he's kind of full of swagger and uh he also turns quite violent I mean he turns into actually his bully who we will talk probably a little bit about later um 
but yeah, it's interesting that the car itself is, I mean, I, I want to get into this because this is kind of why I really want to talk about Christine. The car is this really gendered space, mm-hmm. uh, but Arnie becomes this really, you know, ultra masculine, like macho person who's like, you know, he becomes much more confident, but also a much darker version of himself. And interestingly enough, you know, like sometimes... I guess you expect in certain films that he will return to his original self, but they never return. They never able to return him to the sweet kid that he was before. He's completely overcome. So So, before we get into into Arnie in particular and his mm -hmm. transformation, can you when I said to the list of films that I was going to cover in the teen horror series, Mm -hmm. you like screamed out for Christine, (laughs) which I did. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit like why why you wanted to talk about this film so badly? Well, I think it's like I thought it would be really fun because it's a, a really simple story, but also unexpectedly rich mm-hmm. thematically. And it's got some excellent set pieces that I really want to get into, like the flaming car scene. Um, and it's easily I mean, like it's probably it's definitely not the best Stephen King adaptation. It's not John Carpenter's best. It's not a perfect film. I think, you know, there's a bit of a lull toward the end. Unfortunately, you know, we have the lovely, iconic um, Harry Dean Stan shows up, but he doesn't get a lot to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if you have a, like a spate of murders, somebody has to investigate <laughs> at some point, but he doesn't get, you know. He, He's a reassuring figure. Useless. He's there to yeah. like reassure the panicked teenagers and kind of go a little bit like, oh, shucks, there's been another murder. Well, you know, someone's going to die. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess he's, you know, sort of true to to form. He is law enforcement, but ultimately proves to be quite a hollow presence. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, I also think like, you know, we're ta- you talk about like teen horror um, there and we'll obviously we'll get into this, but um, we are right now obviously living in a very troubled era, but living I in think, a horror film, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But each generation, you know, in thinking a lot about this film, it's sort of like linking troubled generations. And I think that, you know, with each generation, you know, you get more and more cynical and each generation feels more and more displaced. And I think teen horror is able to really articulate that in a really interesting way. And I think this film does it in such a like beautiful really elegant and and like ornate fashion we've talked about this just like right before we started recording and and we've had these conversations at length like you know we're sort of living in an era where horror films seem to feel or filmmakers of horror seem to feel that you have to really bludgeon your audience with your political commentary and it feels uh like it, it to me it always feels like really gratuitous because horror is innately political it is instinctively political you know it, this this scaffolding is already there and you don't need to sort of try so hard and you know i have my reading of uh christine as, as you do and so we'll we will talk about that but you know the setup is there and what makes it so i think what makes this genre so fascinating is that you can watch these films and they're just really fun but you they also obviously sort of gesture to social anxieties and things that are, you know, already like culturally bubbling up. And um, they have so much to say already about our community. So I, I, I mean, like, you know, 
this is not a spoiler alert, but for me, my reading of Christina is very deeply linked to how, you know, American culture is sort of inherently, uh, you know, sets the stage for these kind of toxicities like masculinity and in particular racism. I think that's like a really undersung dimension of this film. So um, yeah, we'll, we will get into it. I think <laughs> we'll get into it. But um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, well, certain things that, you know, I've said multiple times in different spaces and it, mm -hmm. it almost feels trite to say that horror has always been political, but it also mm -hmm. seems to be consistently like a thing that press outlets really want to talk about it's like oh has horror turned political no it always was it's just that it's much yeah. more on the nose now and even yeah. even when it's done by competent or really great filmmakers it does feel very on the nose now sometimes it does feel weirdly pressing because films are written like years before events happen and sometimes they just right. align in a very weird kismity way and then the conversation kind of starts right as if the film were kind of directly parroting something that happened two years after the film was actually made or written but mm. what i did really really what i'm appreciating a lot kind of going back to the original teen horrors of the of the 70s and now kind of in the 80s even the really silly ones is that you can mm. and in christine despite not being the most famous or even the most beloved or even the most competently made of Carpenter films, there is so much uh, commentary that is in the images, that is in the choices. And obviously this relates really back to Stephen King and kind of his themes that he keeps going back to in his stories over and over again. But the way that they're visualized, especially in, in the visuals and in the soundtrack and the choice of the music, they say yeah. so much about exactly the world and the expectations that are created by that world in the characters, mm -hmm. especially in, you know, the male characters. And obviously because of the nature of the the conversations that we usually have on this podcast we almost always focus on 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 the female characters or in the and in this season in particular in teenage girls but i really enjoyed re-watching this film because it's actually all about teenage boys and how yeah. fucked up they are so yes <laughs> can we talk about our our two very opposed protagonists Arnie and Dennis, who are kind of on the polar opposites of the high school hierarchy. You know, you've got the weird, nerdy virgin, uh, the virgin nerd, and the kind of quite liked, plain mm. but beloved quarterback. I think he's a quarterback, right? He's a football player. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I assume they're all quarterbacks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the one position I know, to be honest. So I'm like, everyone's a quarterback. <laughs> So what do you think about them and like what bonds them, do you think? Because they're really like they're genuinely friends. Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting question uh, because it just hadn't occurred to me, actually, that, yeah, they are quite different. And another film, I think Dennis would probably be Arnie's bully. Yeah. Um, Dennis is, you know, like you said, he's well liked. He's quite popular. Girls like him. We should say Kelly Preston pops up in this film um and as this sort of i think she's a cheerleader maybe she's not but she's just kind of you know somebody who's pining after him and he doesn't really notice her yeah um but uh arnie is is the polar opposite but the thing that struck me upon rewatch that really bonds them is misogyny 
I mean, and I mean, like, let's be real. That's a very powerful bonding force for a lot of men. <laughs> when we first meet Dennis, you know, he's saying like, uh, you know, this is our senior year. Like, it's time for you to get laid. This girl is a sperm bucket. You should try her. Like, she's really easy. And then you you watch the film and and uh, it seems as though Arnie's uh, more aggressive display of these traits uh, caused Dennis almost to sort of shrink away from them. And so by the end of the film, you have Dennis being like much more thoughtful about women and about the main uh, female character, Lee. Lee, or well, she's not the she's not the main female character, but she very is, true. She is she's not the title not character. <laughs> Let do not disrespect Christine on the I, Christine I episode. I will try my best. <laughs> I will try my best not to disrespect Christine. Um, but yeah, so you know, it's it's interesting that you know, as far as we see at least because it's and the truth is that you know Dennis does risk his safety quite often for Arnie so it's not as if they have this like really um you know hollow emotional connection but what seems to be the thing that they have in common is the way that they think about women as primarily objects Mm -hmm. and so and even Arnie you know the thing is like you know Arnie is a nerd but from the beginning he too also shares these feelings about oh, women yeah. Generally, you know yeah he's he is like a, quite aggressively misogynistic from the very start he's very much like mm-hmm. the the nerds from revenge of the nerds like women are a yeah. thing like a status symbol like he needs to lose his virginity he literally needs to fuck any girl in order yeah. to um you know go to the next level of i guess being a man in his brain but it has absolutely right. nothing to do with who who the girl might be, what the girl might want, doesn't even enter their their mentality. The way that the, the dialogue in this film, especially at the start, was was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, I knew the 80s were like not great for women, but fucking hell. She's got the. Quite, she looks really smart, there. but she's got the body of a slut. How does that even even make sense? Yeah, I don't know. What does it mean to look smart? I guess she's wearing like khakis. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, how do you? I don't know. But but yeah, it's quite. You know, um, it's really full on. Yeah. I was also quite taken aback by it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, and like. So aside from being bonded over misogyny, the other thing that mm-hmm. um I'm not sure if this t- if this took you back as much as it took me as well, but perhaps because we're in a very masculine world in the in the teenage boys world, but the bullying that Arnie experiences, you know, it's we talked a lot about bullying when we talked about Carrie, but here it takes on a kind of different dimension. It's very physical. It's very aggressive. They're mm. literally f- trying to find ways to beat the shit out of him and when they fight back against the bullies they genuinely get physically hurt now what do you make about the way that um those that those like dynamics with the bullies are represented i mean i was really uh surprised by it as well i mean obviously there's something really uh and not exclusively but you know principally psychological about the bullying that we often see in teen girl films um that is probably triggering on a different level because you know we live through it and it feels quite personal um but this is also quite startling because i think it's so it happens so quickly that when that 
character is he called is called Bu- buddy uh old, old, feels... old bully's name starts with a b it's like buddy, Biff, buddy yeah. <laughs> brad yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> brad um yeah Right, but that he feels, as soon as he feels the least bit out of control or uh, overpowered, that he pulls out of a weapon and he also seems to not be, the thing that is, is quite scary as well is that he feels emboldened to do it. Like he doesn't feel like there is, um, that there will be dire consequences, which does seem to suggest that this behavior is kind of acceptable on some level, that it is expected for him to sort of behave in a violent manner. And you mentioned at the start when we were talking about Arnie is that as, you know, going forward a little bit, but as soon as Arnie meets Christine and kind of his transformation Mm -hmm. begins, you said that he kind of turns into his bully. Like, how does he transform after getting the car? Well, the, and you know, you're right, because because you say, you know, from the beginning, Arnie is very misogynistic. So I think the his core values actually don't really change that much. It's just the way that he presents himself. And so he, you know, wears sleeker, like better clothes, his clothes fit a little bit better. Um, he has a bit of swagger. He seems like much more confident. Um And he is also much more emotionally detached, right? Like before Christine, he at least has his one friendship with Dennis. Mm -hmm. But after Christine, he grows more and more distant from that emotional relationship. It'll be interesting to think about as well the, um, not the first victim, but the previous owner of Christine's, who, uh, the man who sells him the car, Mm -hmm. which I am pretty sure, and I'm not, certain about this but it's the old guy from home alone <laughs> Please, i didn't realize don't let it be him because he has <laughs> the best so. worst line in the film and i don't want to connect that line with home alone <laughs> oh right i i, I know exactly which line you're talking about yeah <laughs> but mm, no. um but he you know he tells when when um arnie and dennis first buy the car he tells them um the story of his brother and then later i think dennis goes back to him and and he reveals that actually the brother's wife and daughter had died in the car and that the the um the owner his brother wouldn't get rid of the car Mm -hmm. like he had to be forced to get rid of it and so it's interesting how christine also begins to sort of proceed I guess the other women in their lives, but also really cuts off these uh, emotional relationships. Like she sort of um, intervenes in them, Mm -hmm. like really makes them sort of, and, and given the car's implications and how it represents a kind of idealized American masculinity specifically that, you know, her, she sort of embodies this and, and that, um, the characters who are possessed by her, mm-hmm. the characters who um, she is owned by, then sort of lose their capacity for compassion for mm-hmm. anybody but her. Well, it's interesting because, like, we we can talk about it as like a possession by Christine, or we can talk about mm-hmm. it as sort of 
the characters actually becoming their truest selves through the influence of Christine. Mm. So like you were saying, Arnie is already kind of a, a misogynist and kind of a dickhead. Like he's not presented as someone who is nice. He's presented as someone who is cowardly. And he mm. is he's told like this is your this is your position in in society. You're a nerd, you're meek, you're not, you know, tall and handsome and appealing to women. You're not uh, a, a powerful figure physically, meaning you're less than a man. And this car kind of slowly makes him shed, the influence of Christine makes him shed kind of these preoccupations and kind of transform into, a, the other thing I, we'll talk about later on is kind of that he transformed into an old-fashioned version of a masculine ideal, like a 1950s version of that, a 1950s mm-hmm. American version, because this is, mm-hmm. the story of Christine is kind of set in two times. It's like set in the 1950s and in 1978. And a lot of that is... Yes communicated visually and musically so through the musical cues the songs that christine picks not anyone else (laughs) and like these 70s teenagers who were you know arnie specifically being influenced to become like a 1950s like a 1950s bully or a 1950s cool guy as well because perhaps you know 20 years ago even in that same town he would have been the coolest dude in the in in town but he those kind of values have kind of gone extinct but even re-watching it now in 2021 I was looking at it and thinking like actually that's not too far off from the sort of conversations that can be found on insult boards and yeah. in all of the conversations that we've had about you know is you know the Joker uh, not to bring that <laughs> disgusting film into, into this disgusting <laughs> because it's mediocre not because it's you know damaging uh, yeah like are these films talking about are there you know um what's the word i'm looking for how to guides for insults all these things Mm -hmm. insults for anyone who doesn't know are like men on the specifically men on the internet who call themselves like involuntarily celibate and blame a lot of blame basically that on women and egg each other on into this frenzied state of misogyny that then has sometimes unfortunately become real life violence and and I was watching this film and feeling like, fuck, the way that people start getting actually terrified of Arnie, people including his parents, as well as his peers, his girlfriend, Lee, his friend, Dennis, actually start getting scared of him because even though he might not be the most physically powerful person, the fact that all of these layers of kind of covering up, of social covering up that had been around him were peeled away by the influence of Christine kind of reveals someone really, really, really scary because Mm -hmm. Arnie doesn't give a shit about anyone. He has things that he wants and those are the things that he's going to get or doesn't really care who gets hurt when if he's protecting Christine and that's it. He doesn't even care about his own well-being. Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. Um, I mean, I wanted to sort of you know, backtrack to something that you said earlier that was quite interesting, which is like the way that, um, you know, his sort of 50s attire like really emerges in this era. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good place to sort of um, turn to, you know, what's happening like currently in 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 1978, right? Yes, it's set in 78. And yeah. um yeah, because I mean, you brought up like a lot of interesting points, you know, we were talking about like American masculinity specifically. Um, the way that Arnie sort of like begins to embody 50s culture is like so um, 
really emblematic of how teen horror works. Uh, I mean, like, generally, one of the more dominant themes in teen horror is this kind of generational tension Mm -hmm. and this sort of feeling of alienation and displacement from your parents. Yeah, like, my parents Um, don't get me and, you know, something violent happens and they cannot help me. The teenagers are always out for themselves. Exactly. Um, And the 70s, I think, is like a, a particularly, you know, tumultuous time in the states um and this film is actually released only like a few years later in 1983 um but you know the 70s is we're dealing with like the the vietnam war and then it's aftermath and and then um you know hippies and um the anti-war movement uh, and you also, also cults- you know i also want to like bring out i think i've mentioned it a couple times in previous episodes the fact that as the hippie movement kind of was coming to an end, people always point to the um, to the Manson murders as the end of the hippie era. Absolutely. But I want to expand that into like in the 70s, there was more active serial killers in the United States of America than at any other point in time. So th- One thousand percent. So the fact that people <laughs> were aware and terrified of other people just like them who were like going out and murdering people that those became national panics. Well, but I mean, think about this, because I read this and it was like quite interesting to me. Um, the ma- One of the major things that people, or not people, but like I think investigators, I can't remember where I read this article, but like the major thing that like John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer had in common were that they were born during wartime and the BTK killer, like his father was this like, you know, with this war, the returning war mm-hmm. veteran who had PTSD, I mean, think about like what the 50s represented, this sort of like the imagery that comes out of the 50s is this really um, popularly like quite conservative, like very strict gender norms of like what the family is like. And we think about how fathers were generally, <laughs> you know, expected to just like go to work and then come back home and not really contribute in any meaningful way to their children's lives and, and just how, you know, remote and disconnected they were. You know, the family was not the family that we think of now mm-hmm. the way we think of family now and and the sort of uh, the intimacy that we um really expect from our home environments and it's really interesting how teen horror like maps out those connections this sort of like you know really like a a kind of um you know this conflict between what uh how culturally i suppose um or communally we think of the family and how that has sort of changed as the years go on and on because generally like you know oh sorry go ahead so there's, <laughs> as you were talking it was like you made me think of something um and i wonder if this is the point that you're trying to get to as well it's like in the horror of the of the 1970s you know the stuff mm-hmm. you know, this is the and this is 1983 so like i'm kind of putting in the, the same wave and obviously carpenter uh, next to deborah hill kind of created one of the blueprints for teen horror with halloween but absolutely but in these films especially in this era of late 70s mid 80s um we see actually the change of who's a source of fear because of this it's not the parents the strict patriarch or the strict or the kind of uh, oppressive mother who are the sources of fear it's the teenagers themselves and then there's a scene in christine where um Arnie's having dinner with his parents and his parents both of them are like quite visibly scared of him 
Like they're yeah. tiptoeing, they're walking on eggshells around what they might say, what they might ask of him. And I find it very mm. curious that like usually in teen horror movies, parents are quite absent and it's just the teenagers by themselves, which is everything you were mentioning about right. like that distance, that generational um, dissonance. But I think there's also a thing that was happening at that time, perhaps changed quite significantly that families started being afraid of their own children. I'm not saying this was the norm, but this became a possibility, especially as we were talking about real life serial killers who were all kind of from the same generation. Right. And I think, but I think, you know, within that absence throughout teen horror, I think parents are almost always complicit in some way in the horror that ends up troubling and or haunting their children. I think about like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm -hmm. where it's like the parents... You know, that's a film that's also quite uh, obviously about childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. And the way that the ch- the way that the parents handle it is by removing the who they perceive as the villain, but then proceeding to not really like uh, try to, you know, forge any sort of connections with their children after the fact. Parents are either, you know, not there, they're really remote, or they're sort of actively harming their children in some way. Um, we also, like, this is a, a parent in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well, which is obviously, like, you know, uh, there are multiple theories about how it's, like, deeply connected to the Vietnam War and how children are sort of, like, offered up as, like, sacrificial lambs. And so even though in this film, I think parents grow to be, like, really afraid, well, his parents, Arnie's parents specifically, going to be really afraid of him there is still like a level of complicity right because his parents have like a really vested interest in keeping him small and Mm -hmm. innocent and um you know they're kind of like nagging him they're kind of always scolding him his mother doesn't want him to use the word fellatio or any sort of obscenities and the kind of person that he grows into is somebody who's always swearing and who is violent to his father Mm -hmm. but you know they also it's very weird they don't want him to have a car and a car is actually like in American society. And we should say the American city is only livable through, apart from like New York, right? Is only livable through car ownership. And so it is this rite of passage, this like sort of necessary pathway to independence mm-hmm. for children. Um, and the fact that they don't want him to have a car, even though he's already bought it and it's quite old anyway. So you don't imagine that he's going to, you know, before they know that Christine has, you know, supernatural tendencies, mm-hmm. they don't want him to have the car. So they really try, they take great strides in order to um, sort of curb his independence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems that they're like very interested in keeping him dependent on them. You know, it's very, Arnie is like a senior, right? Mm -hmm. And his mother is still sort of packing his lunch. So they do have, you know, even though they are afraid of him, they do have a role to play in the way that he turns out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, as all parents do in the way we all turn out. Um, But I realize that we've been talking for a while without actually kind of really talking about Christine. So Ah, hmm. (laughs) the girl, let's let's talk about the real protagonist of the film, the real the real villain, (laughs) the lady in red. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's we first meet Christine. She's the only red car, Mm -hmm. I think, in an assembly line of beige cars. So she's the color of blood. And um, <laughs> she she maims this guy, like with it, like as soon as she's built, she maims this guy who like reaches under her hood. Um, and you know then what? another guy sort of. 
Is she is she just slapping away <laughs> some dude who was trying to get a little bit too frisky? Can we read it as that? I mean, absolutely. We almost always see Christine is, especially because later on, Christine is sort of violently attacked mm-hmm. um, by a group of boys. You know, she has very strong boundaries, Christine. <laughs> and so, you know, she she that guy gets maimed and then another guy takes his smoke break in the car Mm -hmm. and happens to drop ash on her seat. And she does not take kindly to that. And that man suffocates. And, you know, as I said, like we learn that she, so it seems that she's kind of born bad, but Mm -hmm. then we later learn from the possible home alone guy. (laughs) that I'm sorry. (laughs) But we learn that it's, you know, it's possible that, you know, she can get attached to certain people. Mm -hmm. Um, mainly her her male owners. I think also this is like a good time to really like break down the implications of the car. Yes. Uh, because this is kind of in part why I really wanted to talk about mm-hmm. this film. Um, the car is in large part, thanks to cinema herself, <laughs> uh, a symbol of, you know, sex and danger and freedom. Um, but it's also a deeply gendered, and I would also argue <laughs> this much less talked about, a deeply racialized space. So it's interesting that, you know, Christine is born in the 50s mm-hmm. and a lot of 1950s films sort of present the car as a space of dating and sex. And this is in part why parents are so threatened by the car because it's a place where your kids can go off and have sex. And also, let's just um, say that that kind of image of the car is also very, very specific to American culture and one that, you know, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, has actually been created basically by American films. So it's a thing. It's a question yes. of like um, American films have created this image and then that that has actually created social behaviors and absolutely the driving is an all-american thing that has now been imported and you know exported all around the world especially during the panini times when cinemas weren't allowed to be open <laughs> but like yeah. that you're absolutely correct like that is a thing that symbolizes not just america but american cinema and american teenagers in particular Absolutely. Car culture has been hugely uh, influential in shaping gender and in like in teen culture because it offers kids an escape from their parents. But we should also say (laughs) that, you know, not only do cars hold this sort of uh, very significant place in in homosocial relationships, um, but that cars were also, you know, hugely like very central to keeping white people insulated from having to be publicly associated with other races i mean i read something like in my research for this where it was like there was huge anxiety around having uh white women share trains with black men on their way to work and i mean like I, you think of like a horrible event like the Scottsboro case, mm-hmm. where I think it's like the 1920s or 1930s, where this group of black boys and teenagers were accused with very, with like absolutely no evidence, you know, of raping two white women on a train, and they were convicted. I mean, I have to like bring this stuff up because when we sort of connect or make these historical connections between things that are sort of common in our society and racism, people are kind of like, Ugh, like rolling their eyes, like, really? And it's like, yes, really. A lot no, of the things you're abs- that we... You're absolutely correct in bringing them up. Like, we're living in a post-you're-wrong-about world. Like, we are actually, it's our (laughs) duty to make these connections. Because they do inform decisions and they do inform real, like, 
culture and art and things like that, they're all interconnected with one another. The thing is that we forget about these things the further away in the past that they are from us or the further away in cultures that they are from us. Absolutely. And I think also about like white flight to the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. You need a car to get back and forth. Mm -hmm. And part of what, not part of, what racism and really any sort of marginalization does is regulate the spaces that the marginalized can exist in. It places limits on where you can go and your movement. And you thinking about like, you know, please forget that awful film, The Green Book. But The Green Book was a very real thing mm-hmm. because Black people had to be very careful about which spaces they existed in because harm could come to them. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this also again now in like, you know, the way people are treating trans people and trying to regulate the spaces where they can exist. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is huge. Like, this is why I kind of, like, really love this film is because it's, like, the car becomes a really excellent representation of this, like, movement that is both first privileged, but also gendered and also deeply racialized. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it's also very interesting because Christine is born in the 50s and she represents this kind of, you know, her her regenerative powers, which I guess we'll get into, Mm -hmm. seem to suggest that, you know, she, this unresolved horror that is behind us will keep uh, rejuvenating itself and will keep recycling itself and will continue to be reborn throughout the eras um because you know i guess lee and and uh dennis sort of like what's that thing they do they like smash her i don't know anything about cars just, like, driving <laughs> oh you mean when day. they when they compress her um yes yeah. exactly they compress it and make it small and then it's very emblematic of sort of rewriting or trying to sort of mm-hmm. disavow certain uh historical traumas <laughs> but um every time i say traumas now i think of that compilation of jamie lee curtis saying it's about trauma <laughs> we love her we stand. do not just but, do not. you know it's true <laughs> it is it is true you know we're not getting to the heart of the problem the thing itself exists and um You'd ask one of your questions um, that you'd said to me was like, you know, not to show how the pudding is made to the people <laughs> listening. <laughs> but one of your questions was like, what kind of, you know, like monster do you think of Christina's? And so maybe it's a good place here to sort of think like, well, the- you know, my in my head, I thought of her as like a kind of succubus where all of these like gendered and racialized things are sort of collapsed into her. So the thing, that, the thing that's really interesting, I think this is a good point to talk about Christina's a monster, Christina and Christine's power as well and also a little mm-hmm. bit about the difference between the origins of her powers because you know not we're not going to go into like the novel versus the the film because i again i've read so much stephen king as a teenager a lot of it is kind of blurs into one sometimes so i think <laughs> i might have read christine as a teen but not in any way that i can actually talk about it right now but i do okay. know that like in the novel there is like a clear explanation that she's possessed by the the spirit of one of the one of her previous owners so like actually there's okay. a there's an evil man who is inside the car basically uh, but interesting i've the filmmakers chose made the choice to make it kind of you know refuse that explanation and just make it an evil car so they never really explain right. it and whenever nothing like uh, the source of evil is not telegraphed to us by the film i always love it so much more because essentially it makes Same. it 
uh, you can project anything you can read so many things into it um and and it's not i mean it's very common for carpenter's films as well you know even if you think of michael myers in the original halloween like he's just a bottomless shapeless faceless pit of despair and evil there is no real explanation for him until way 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 down the line and who also keeps regenerating yeah for sure and and also like even in the fog i think or like even in some of his uh mm. lesser films that are a bit more i mean that i love dearly but something like you know the prince of darkness or even the thing like a lot of these things are very amorphous so the fact that christine is supernatural but not explain where that comes from i really love because it a lot of it comes from readings of her, from all these other things. The fact that she is this beautiful car, but she's very much a product of the 50s. The fact that she's gendered, even by her name. The fact that she kind mm -hmm. of starts behaving almost like a jealous lover. First as a protective lover, then as a jealous lover. Is she also kind of behaving like Arnie's mother in a way, where she's trying to protect him from bad influences, especially girls? Well, I don't know, because the, let's be careful here, because it, you uh, the, another question that you asked me was, is a particular scene a sex scene? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which was very, you know, I have come across this theory before. I would love you to walk me through it, because my feeling is that the scene before, and we should say there's a part of Christine where um, Arnie's bully and his friends mm -hmm. sort of Break, like you know destroy christine yeah. and one of them like defecates on her yeah. and that to me is quite clearly a rape scene yeah um and the scene that comes later is arnie sort of saying to her show me and she mm -hmm. shows him her powers the, the full breadth of her powers yeah i mean i kind of agree with both of them if we interpret the show me scene as a sex scene then i think the scene where christine gets gets brutalized by the bullies is a rape scene and mm. and you know I think you know I think that's a rating I don't think that's one rating but I think there is perhaps because I I'm still thinking about Titan I am yeah <laughs> uh, I am just thinking about like these this intense attraction that Arnie feels and I think Keith Gordon does play him as being kind of sexually attracted to the car or for sure the power that the car gives him or the self-confidence that christine imbues him with like the mix of all those things the way she makes him feel the way that people look at him when he's driving her like all of these things mixed together there is a definite i think sexual edge to the way that he plays it which makes me think of those scenes as sexualized Right. And his actual girlfriend, Lee, uh, he feels like he's their relationship is like almost purely aesthetic and supernatural, super, not supernatural, <laughs> superficial. Yeah. Like it's a completely superficial. She is the prettiest girl in school. As we said, she looks smart. No, it's that. Yeah, she yeah. looks smart. She looks smart. But, she wait, I actually wrote it down. <laughs> she looks smart, but she's got the body of a slut. Right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, some people's dream girl, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, it's very interesting because cars and women are quite twinned in a way in that they're both these really primal, the foremost, you know, putting this in quotes, possessions Status of symbols. manhood. Yeah, they are extensions of a specifically American manhood. Mm -hmm. And in any other scenario, Christine, uh, or, or, you know, Christine and, and Lee would be in the same space or they would occupy much the same space. But it's clear that 
Arnie at least has a much more intimate relationship with Christine. He at least has like compassion for her in a way that he doesn't really have for Lee, who remains for most of the film, if not entirely for him, an object. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting that, you know, the film, (laughs) and I think Titan. Titan or however it is. I'm not French, but it is a film is another film that is sort of like thinking about these um, really historical traditional implications of the car and how gender is sort of mapped onto the car. I mean, the the very act of naming the car a female as Mm -hmm. female, giving her a female name is part of, you know, um, sort of patriarchal um, conception. So those things are like really well done, I mm-hmm. think, in this film. But I'm sorry, we kind of digressed. What do you think about Christine as a as a supernatural villain? I guess that's the most succinct way to describe her. Well, I think that Christine is probably like, because you're right, you don't have a lot of context for her in the film anyway. Uh, we love to see a Stephen King film that does not immediately fall back onto an Indian burial ground. Um, although Christine does work, I think, in much the same way in that she sort of embodies, I would argue that she embodies a kind of cultural horror. I would say that she, you know, obviously she, like we're saying, she's sort of an idealized Uh, representation of American masculinity because this is what she sort of like this is uh, you know what she extends to Arnie Um, but she also sort of like I mean to me she's a kind of succubus right like she really does begin to sort of as much as she possesses these men she also begins to like really um, take from them sort of like uh, um I guess, draw them away from all, you know, one of the things I was saying before was like, she really breaks off their emotional attachments so that these men become completely consumed with her. Um, and so I think it's it's very um, uh, interesting that like, you know, to place this sort of inanimate, she is an inanimate object mm-hmm. and we don't really see her as I suppose, traditionally feminine, but she sort of possesses all of, uh, you know, the traits of, uh, or conventional traits of like female monstrosity Mm -hmm. as it is sort of transcribed in horror. And one thing that kind of you, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about and and I think this is a good place to bring it up is actually that monstrosity, that violence, like, the the horror set pieces of Christine. What do you make of them? Especially considering that Carpenter has gone on record saying that he doesn't really think of this as a horror film. I mean, John, allow us. <laughs> we will decide. <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting that he doesn't think of it as a horror because, you know, I was watching Halloween mm-hmm. because it was recently Halloween. <laughs> and <laughs> so, as I do, um, and uh, Christine has a lot of the same stalking tendencies as one Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah, she does. She loves to hide behind a bush. I Right, exactly. So it's kind of hard. It's interesting that he doesn't think of this as a horror because she really sort of the way that she... Um, I suppose we get to know much more about her than we know about Michael. <laughs> I mean, I, well, in, in early the first films, one, by the, yeah. By this point... Um, 
but uh, by this point in the Halloween franchise, but you know, she uh, stalks her victims. She kind of toys with them as well, which is extremely insidious. <laughs> My favorite set piece is, I mean, quite obvious probably, but the scene in which she chases, after she has been attacked by them, she chases the bullies down one by one mm -hmm. and she finds two of them near a fueling station she drives into the fueling station yes. and the car is, you know, set ablaze. And then it, like the guy, Buddy, sort of runs out on down to the, yes. on the open road. It's absolutely completely pitch dark, by the way. Yes. And so you have this car that's on flames sort of driving down the road. John Carpenter, and I think he did the score he this did. time around with Alan Horowitz. Yeah. And so you have this like brilliant, like really classic score at this point sort of like you know sort of just going like dun, 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 as he sort of tracks him Fucking down the soundtrack. road and he's it's incredible and he's obviously you know he's not gonna outrun the car but it's just like a really you know this feels cliche to say at this point like quite visually stunning like there's and something about this so scene that beautiful always sticks out of my head i i was kind of i was really kind of take it aback i think i was watching it as uh, in the dark and i was like holy shit this is so gorgeous to watch like mm -hmm. i kind of want the film just to be the car chasing this guy down the road <laughs> for the entire two hours of it yeah and i think you know again to to, to john carpenter saying this film isn't a horror film there are so many murders <laughs> like people just get into the car and you know at, at a certain point you also realize like christine is quite menacing right like i mean from the beginning you know that she's menacing mm -hmm. but you also know that she doesn't like particular uh things and so there's a scene where dennis is sort of like pulling on her handle right like putting on the mm -hmm. car door and you already begin to sort of develop this this sense of dread when anybody other than Arnie attempts to go near Christine. Mm -hmm. I mean, John Carpenter is kind of like the master of this, right? He yeah. is, first of all, like hugely uh, influential in sort of developing or pioneering the teen horror genre, Absolutely. but also in sort of mapping out suspense and mm -hmm. sort of building, you know, really like putting, layering uh in a very like um subtle way this sense of impending dread so Absolutely. that you know you're sort of conditioned to know like this is like uh, not gonna work out well for you <laughs> it does this in really subtle ways that kind of make you identify with um not necessarily the victim but i think with the point of view of the villain so there's so many shots mm -hmm. in halloween that make you feel afraid for the victim but because you are seeing what Michael Myers is seeing, so you're very much, all nice. those POV shots, but the way that the rest of the film is crafted and the music and, and kind of all those different elements coming together with Carpenter always makes you feel the dread. I kind of think that his, um the actual kills sometimes aren't as impressive as the buildup because he's so mm. good at kind of knowing, making you feel exactly the things that will set off the killer. Or that will right. make them retreat and kind of wait for the next opportune moment to to strike. And right. and in Christine, I think one of my favorite, not quite kills, because she doesn't kill Lee, is when Lee is eating a burger in the car. And as soon as she started yeah. unwrapping that burger, I was like, holy shit, Christine's not going to like this. Please. 
if like a single little drop of mayonnaise drops anywhere near the leather, she is gonna like something's gonna happen. Like that dread of like you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. Like you should not be doing right. this in front of Christine. In Christine. Like and- no. <laughs> How dare you, Lee? Not you eating in the car in Christine. And the extent <laughs> on Christine's seat. <laughs> and Christine's like powers are weirdly not explained but completely believable. But since even in that scene, mm-hmm. she makes Lee choke on her burger. That's not a physical yeah. thing that she kind of has. She's not chasing her down the street. She's not, uh, you know, compressing her inside the car. She's literally making her choke on something that she's eating. And I found that very right. scary. It's like that little, those little hints at supernatural powers that are never really quite defined. Yeah. And yeah. And I did kind of, we, we've spoken about our, our, our other book club member, Mr. King, a little bit. But <laughs> I do find it interesting that this kind of also falls in inside one of the first waves of King adaptations. I'd argue that we're probably mm-hmm. living through the third, potentially fourth mm-hmm. wave, because there was another big one in the 90s. But yeah. in the Sadies, we you know we got Carrie in seventy six, we got The Shining a few years earlier, we've got the Salem's Lot TV series, we've got Creep Show, got the Dead Zone. How do you think Christine kind of stands in in this first wave of Stephen King visual adaptations? And you, we should also say this is the third Stephen King adaptation of that year alone. Yeah. So he was you know on fire. Bank. <laughs> but- well done. <laughs> good for him um i mean it's interesting right because he always sort of he's so prolific and i think there is a kind of sense that stephen king is not like literature but incorrect and another set <laughs> i'm not subscribing to that belief no. but in the other sense you know chris his films or his books sorry i should say his books have gotten directors like cronenberg to palma um, who's the other one? The big one. Oh, Kubrick. <laughs> How dare I? Kubrick. <laughs> oh my god, Kelly. Kelly, the film birds are gonna come for you. Don't. <laughs> well, they'll find me. It's fine. <laughs> but you know, he's these are like serious directors, right? Um, who have, I guess, like varying degrees of at this point or these points in their careers, like have achieved varying mm-hmm. degrees of status. <laughs> but, you know, they seem to find in his work something like really rich i mean all of the films that we've named right are these directors absolutely relishing what his material allows them to do Mm -hmm. and like really using like a lot of fascinating stylistic flourishes to sort of like achieve it i mean uh we need not mention the brilliance of the shining and its long legacy <laughs> we've spoken but, at know, length about know, carrie and how great that absolutely. is absolutely I mean, creep right, show like these ex- i mean also cujo i i have like i was in new york recently and my uncle was watching cujo and i like had to stop to sort of like look at it because you know it's a film about like a, a rabbit dog yeah. but somehow just like incredibly uh you know really well done like these are not bad films um in terms of like you know how they sort of add to his um i guess his legacy right like christine is uh one of these films that like i think at the time was maybe moderately successful, mm-hmm. but has since become a kind of cult classic for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about now. And so I think it's just sort of, you know, part of 
his capacity to sort of use like set up like really kind of I mean, once when you hear about them, they sound quite silly, right? Like, oh, it's a dog chasing after these people, or it's a car who has supernatural powers. And yet, these are really uh, long, like really enduring films that continue to sort of like inspire filmmakers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but I think it's sort of like you know a part like it's the beginning of like a really rich legacy right like really indicative of you know his um prowess i guess in horror yeah i think christine like it was it was a a a good success at the box office but critics really dismissed it at that time i mean to be honest yeah like i roll here but you know critics always dismiss a lot of things that are great at the time of release mm-hmm. uh we all know the reasons why but uh the, it, it is like it is interesting that it wasn't really taken seriously and I think the fact that King's literature wasn't taken seriously for a long time is a part of it. The fact that it's kind of just Mm. seen as cheap entertainment but as we've Mm. been talking for about an hour and as you know there's so much more that we could talk about where there are so many different interpretations and layers of value to this film and it is I think it is a horror film. I think it's very unsettling and creepy. It's creepy Mm. because the horror comes from the characters not so much because of the premise like the premise of a of an evil car sounds dumb on paper but arnie is actually the really really scary person in this his bullies are scary in a completely different way the entirety Mm. of the school and how you know the teenage boys talk about the girls is really really scary his relationship with his parents is terrifying like there's so many things about it that even watching it now it's a film from the 80s that's set in the 70s that takes a lot from 1950s Americana culture. And still it has elements that are really destabilizing and really creepy even now. Like I really, I I can't remember why. Perhaps it was like from one of our conversations why this ended up in the teen horror list. I'm really glad it did because it actually shows how some of the, like the horror in Christine, the teen horror of Christine comes from the teens themselves. It's not really from the car. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned like a really um, fascinating thing, right? Like it's a, he's always been quite good at this. And, um, you know, like we said, horror is always like a really particularly adept at articulating social horrors. And King is quite good at sort of misdirecting you. Like, obviously, there's a lot of supernatural stuff going on, but almost always the people are the most monstrous and grotesque characters um but this also might be like you know a really good place to um talk about the music in christine um (laughs) because i (laughs) i mean because this is the other thing right like i just sort of kind of and he does get on my nerves when he does this shit like i hate indian burial grounds right but he's also i think you know quite um perceptive and 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 in a really um interesting way about a, the kind of like rot of america mm-hmm. and so the indian barrel ground is kind of like obviously i it's not necessary but like it's something that it's his way i think of sort of translating uh that element and the way that christine i mean first of all we should say christine is born in and this I noticed this only upon this latest rewatch was that Christine mm-hmm. is born in Detroit 
And Detroit yeah. is the home of Motown. So, mm-hmm. I mean, for those, I guess, maybe children <laughs> don't, who are listening to this and don't know what Motown is, Motown is the record company that's responsible for Michael Jackson, for Diana Ross, Smokey Robinson. Um, and this is like, you know, uh, you know, this music is is considered the like American music, right? But Christine quite often, and I guess we should say she tends to communicate through uh, her her uh, song you know, like choices, the songs. Yeah, the songs that she plays. It's interesting that she plays a lot of, shall we say, like traditional rock music, mm-hmm. which is to say a lot of whitewashed black music and i don't know because this is really this sort of struck me this time around like in 1983 i don't know how accepted it would have been to sort of say that rock music is black music but Mm -hmm. certainly it's widely accepted now that rock is born out of gospel and jazz and rhythm and blues and this music is not just linked to by the black artists singing them but by a specifically black experience of their country so mm-hmm. you have like the song that opens the film and it kind of becomes like her theme music bad to the bone bad to the bone it samples muddy waters who's this american blues singer yeah then she oh, the black artists that she does play are like uh little richard and larry williams little richard by the way is like considered at this point it is true the pioneer of rock and roll as yes. we know it and it's like him chuck berry uh you know um sister rosetta sharp tina turner mm-hmm. there is no rock music there is no rock and roll without these people absolutely and it is deeply interesting that her first kill is a black man he is mm-hmm. the guy who gets into the car and smokes his cigar and gets ash on her now, Christina, uh, not Christina, Christine may or may not see color. I don't know if she's like, she's obviously not confined by race, right? But I think that is such an interesting and really subtle way to sort of communicate this kind of Americana that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like this sort of cultural, um, con- just all these really interesting implications sort of um, are embodied by her and when we're talking about like the way that her now seems you know very invested in te- telegraphing it's you know you know commentary and the kind of discourse that it wants to create I love that the way that this is handled so subtly right like mm-hmm. these are this is like a very real like dimension of of you know uh what this film is about but it's not you know sort of overtly it's not done in such a way that it's like shoving your face do you know what i mean because i think we are sort of like in this era now where it would be if christine was made in 2021 and heaven forbid somebody decides to they are remaking it uh, by the way oh why would you say that (laughs) i'm so sorry kelly also um jason blum is remaking it and brian fuller is directing I hate this news. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Why would you say that? I was coming. I mean, well, okay. Well, it will come true then. Christine being remade now, it's going to like absolutely bludgeon us with these, um, you know, political implications. Where So they move beyond subtext to this place where it's just like impossible or not impossible but it just makes this feel i feel like it just really undermines what is so uh wonderful about this genre 
Well, I think what's what's really interesting as you were talking is like not only the music cues and the the city of Detroit, but the fact that we start in a car factory as well, which is a very mm. like it's basically the the I don't know what the right word for it is. It's basically the point where kind of this affluent uh, Americana mm. culture that became kind of a symbol of American culture in the 1950s, especially through American films, this boom, kind of all of that capitalistic society and the image of the car as a status symbol and as 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 a necessary or almost another person in a nuclear family. Um, be, kind of was created, so it's kind of the birth of Americana in many ways that we're seeing. And at the same time, all those, all those music cues, and I'm looking at the um, at the list of songs that are included in the film now. Mm. All of those things, the picking of the original rock and rollers that we are now, mm. you know, now everyone culturally acknowledges that yes, absolutely, rock and roll was invented by black musicians, black American musicians specifically. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But there was, especially in the 80s, when I'm thinking of hair rock, I'm thinking of Mm. glam, I'm thinking of metal, a lot of these things that create an image of rockers as being incredibly overly sexualized, kind of glammy Mm. white dudes with long hair. That is not where rock and roll kind of comes from. Definitely not musically. But all of those things are incredibly subtle. You kind of have to, you kind of have to know or recognize the music of Little Richard. You kind of have to recognize yeah. what he did. Kind of have to, in a way, recognize the riffs or recognize some of the influences, at least. And all music kind of is woven in together. Their musicians are constantly ripping each other off, like in little bits right. and pieces. It's not something that's happening now with Olivia Rodrigo. Like that has always mm. happened. Um, right. But. <laughs> Courtney. <laughs> Let me not invoke that. Provoke <laughs> the ire of Courtney Love. <laughs> I I just want to say the best possible reaction to that whole all of those controversies has been um my favorite Elvis Costello who's been like, "Are you joking? I don't give a shit. Like everybody does oh. this. I used to do this. Like, have you listened to my early shit? Like, that's all ripoffs." <laughs> I love that he said that. <laughs> yeah, good for him. He's like, dude, I've had my time. Let her do her thing. Like, good for her. <laughs> good for good for you, Elvis Costello. <laughs> I'm sorry, I am a dad. <laughs> but I do, I do. Kind of to go back to your point, kind of, I love the fact that that is there. That is there, mm. and that is a layer that perhaps is much more evident, I think, to to American viewers, like people who are much more seamed mm. in in kind of in American culture and in Americana, and right. and then another layer for like music lovers or rock and roll lovers who will know the history of the musicians that are playing, mm. but also those musical choices kind of instantly evoke a 1950s vibe so we know we're already being displaced in time because we're in the 70s and the music choices are not from the 70s and they also sound like something that is nostalgic towards the 50s so it's very much kind of like a grease approach to to horror where like these are 70s people but they're thinking and and kind of like having all these cultural markers of being in the 50s, except in Christine, it's just Arnie. Arnie is the only one who's kind of trying to role play Danny Zuko here. No one else is in on the mm-hmm. on the joke with him. 
But I think also it sort of is like those eras are deeply connected, right? Because you talked about what was happening in the 70s, but also in the 50s, you mm-hmm. have the dawn of the Cold War and you have the civil rights movement. So these things are so um, cyclical. Is that right? Cyclical. <laughs> They're so, they continue to reset. They continue to reappear, right? And I think that's deeply linked to the way that, it, you know, Christine herself, much more reasonably than, say, Michael Myers, <laughs> does continue to sort of reanimate because the truth is that those errors are very deeply linked. We're talking about baby boomers here. Um, mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, this is their generation. And I think they're actually like very um, deeply, uh, the, 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 all of the horrors that are, are happening in the 70s have a kind of almost direct mirror into what's happening and into what what's happening in the 50s so they do kind of double each other i do think that's like such an interesting and really quite generational um link to make because even though arnie is really the villain of this piece like you're saying it is also very true that like these what's happening is that christine within christine and arnie are collapsing all of these like really grotesque social horrors like you know, there is something like incredibly noxious about Christine that's obviously supernatural, but it's also quite like all wrapped up and bound up in what she embodies and ultimately what Arnie then embodies. So it is kind of a sort of like, you know, one horror begets more horrors and it sort of continues in that way. And so the last scene where she's sort of twitching and um, getting ready to sort of rebuild herself makes sense because now we've moved past the seventies and we're still in this situation in which, you know, we're continue to, we continue to be haunted by troubling conceptions of, of gender and masculinity and racism. And um, so these things have yet to die. And so I think that's like, actually, you know, Christine is probably one of the more chilling to me and my, in my view, one of the more chilling horror films. <laughs> and also, I think because like you were saying, like, there is really no explanation for where her evil comes from as far as the mm-hmm. film is concerned. So it is completely mappable, right? So if so much of it comes from what we, um, what we perceive from her. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. And and really to start kind of wrapping up a conversation around Christine, what do you make of that, of the way that the film ends? You know, Arnie dies, he, we're not able to save him. Um, mm. Christine gets, I'm sure there's a proper car word for it. I don't drive. I don't know. <laughs> I'm European. Like, there's no one fucking drives here. Like, why Why would I ever need a license? Like, it's just un, like, I mean, I, undergrounds I, and I metros drive. everywhere. Of course, I you drive, drive and I also. <laughs> but I'm saying I don't know the words either. Like I would be, like, she's compressed, right? Like she's in a junkyard. Yeah, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah, she's made. She's made into um, a she's little tiny a, thing. A little tiny <laughs> compressed Christine. Let's call her that. Um, yeah. And and kind of, well, you know, th- we do get her little carry moment at the end of the film, which I really liked, where, you know, she twitches one of the tubes, twitches a little bit, which is just like Carrie's mm-hmm. arm, Carrie's arm. hand popping out from her grave in the really, in the yeah, fake yeah. out ending of Carrie. But what do you think overall of the way that the film ends and how it leaves us? I mean, I I think it's sort of all the things that we've been saying, right? Like, it is 
not, uh, Christine's just not gonna die easily because the things that she represents will not die easily. But I also think it's like quite an interesting, um, setup, right? That is quite distinct from a lot of teen horror films. And so I'd be interested mm -hmm. to hear what you think. Um, and that Dennis also survives, even though he, I mean, he's not useless, but like Dennis is not great. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's, he's kind of like, he, he is like Ernie, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, the, perhaps this is the point. I mean, I'm almost certain this is the point, like, right? Like Arnie dies, but Dennis too sort of still carries a lot of these. Although I suppose we see him sort of like be really tender with Lee, but it's easy for him to be tender with Lee because he's attracted to Lee <laughs> and he wanted her from the beginning. We really haven't actually seen any redemption for Dennis either. <clears throat> so it is an interesting thing where it's like, Typically, in these teen horror films, the thing that sort of gets or allows the the one woman to survive is that she's virginal, um, but she also kind of embodies uh, certain masculine tendencies that allow for, um, or as uh, I think Carol Clover has famously argued, a generally teen male audience to also identify with her. She is not, you know, alienatingly female. And that is true of Lee, because Lee wears, like, I don't know what those pants are called, but they're kind Kind of like they're like long shorts capris and she does kind of she herself kind of looks like a 1950s boy um or dresses like one and so maybe that's mm -hmm. what that other guy was alluding to <laughs> but it's interesting that they these are the characters who survive as well as harry dean stanton although like i said like he's kind of on the sidelines not really contributing anything <laughs> certainly not solving this case but <laughs> um what do you make of it i'd be interested to hear. i mean I I loved Harry Dean Stanton's contribution, which I actually wrote down, where he was like, you know what? Some things can be helped. Some people, too. I'm like, okay. That tracks. That summarizes Thank the you. entire film. Thank you, Harry Dean. <laughs> With that sentiment, in a way, it was like, Arnie was always going to end badly, whether mm -hmm. Christine appeared in his life or not. I think Christine just expedited mm -hmm. his terrible ending. But that's the way that I read it. And I thought it really interesting kind of looking at all of these horror films. And I'm, I'm really containing myself and not looking at films kind of ahead of the schedule because I'm going quite chronologically is that the, the teen protagonists that we have are usually dictated by kind of expectations of who's the good teenager, who's the bad teenager. And here they're all kind of terrible. But I think that Arnie, <laughs> I think that Dennis does kind of learn. He learns because he sees what's going on with Arnie. I think Lee is kind of a what Lee is kind of objectified in this film both in in a sexual way and kind of in a narrative way. I don't think she really contributes that much. She kind of tries to do good, but she doesn't really get enough space to develop a personality of her own. It's always just by association with the boys who want to fuck her basically. And what I did really love was kind of how Arnie transformed into a villain and then got punished. Like he had to die because he is the villain. He is the villain of his own movie. And and I love that the movie doesn't doesn't excuse him. He's terrible. He do, his friends do try to save him, but I think that's more because that's kind of what's expected of them. It's not because they actually want to. And and I think this like twitch by Christine, the fact that Christine never really fully dies makes complete sense with the fact that she we never really kind of see an explanation for why 
Christine is evil, like we've been discussing. And in many ways, this feels like very much exactly like the blueprint for the teen horrors that would come afterwards or the franchising of teen horrors. But I don't think this ever really got franchised because if it did, it would just become like a silly, oh, this car is going to murder me thing. And eventually, you know, Mm. Christine would start talking with the voice of Bruce Willis or something like that. Um, (laughs) It isn't. It's so much. I mean, don't say that when the film's being remade. They're they're, they're gagging for ideas like this. I know, but I think. I think they're going to make it a lot more sexual, to be honest. I think that's what's going to happen. I, l- I know Brian Fuller's, Buller, Brian Fuller's work, and I know the way that Titan has been, like, reacted to. So, like, Christine's going to fuck in, in 2022 when she gets remade or whatever. <laughs> I love Brian Fuller! <laughs> yeah! So, like, Chris going to fuck. That's what's going to happen. Oh, I hope not. Maybe, but maybe she'll be queer. That would be great. Maybe. But, um... <laughs> To get back to to your point, I think actually it kind of sets up the the open door for this being more, but I'm really glad that nothing else happened because I think the story that we needed to see was the story of Arnie's disintegration. That's the story. It's not the story of an evil car. And I think that kind of put... And it's chilling because we're not used to seeing the nerd as the source of evil yet at this point in 1983. So I think in that way, it's really kind of, it's quite different in a way, because we get to see a lot of this, you know, like, oh, it's actually the teenagers who are evil because one of them is the killer or whatever. We see that a lot in the 90s later on in the slasher, um, in the renaissance of the slasher in the 90s. But this early on, I think it is it is really eerie. And I think Keith Gordon's performance specifically and the way, like the way that he is physically, his physicality plays a lot into this because he looks like a, a perfectly nice all-American boy. But he is a very, very scary personality. And I find that like quite chilling in a very modern way, seeing this film now. So actually, like I... I think this like this is a kind of a surreptitious teen horror film where the things that are scary and not the things that are the movies telling us that are scary, if that makes sense. I don't know <laughs> if you're cutting out or if you're just dissatisfied with my answer, Kelly. <laughs> yeah, I'm satisfied with this answer. <laughs> I'm satisfied <laughs> with this conclusion. Um, is there anything that you wanted to mention about Christine that we haven't managed to cover in our conversation? I don't think so. Um, You know, the only thing that I will say as an outro is that uh, I, you know, eagerly anticipate the I Know What You Did Last Summer episode. Many, many, it will be many episodes in the future, I imagine, uh, Mm -hmm. because you haven't gotten to the 90s yet. But that is my comfort movie. It makes me feel good when I'm low. And uh, yeah, I love teen horror. So this is a great series. (laughs) I'm happy to be part of it. in any small way so kelly for anyone who's not familiar with your work where can people find more of your work online i suppose you can find me at sight and sound you can find me at reverse shot i write for them and uh numerous other publications and i'm on twitter as kelly with an i uh weston excellent Thank you so much, as always, for your time and for your insight (laughs) on the Killer Car movie, which turned out to be the Killer Insult movie. I mean, a banger. I I highly (laughs) recommend it. (laughs) 